Hey, good morning. It's Patricia Murphy. It's Friday. This is Seattle Now. This week, there'll be another open seat on the city council this year. That makes three. Twitter employees are working from home after their boss stopped paying the rent. And Seattle is a great place to make a fresh start in the new year. We're breaking down the week with KUOW's Bill Radke and author Anne Helen Peterson. But first, let's get you caught up. The National Weather Service says Western Washington's going to be windy and rainy for the next few days, especially if you're on the coast. Wind speeds reached 49 miles an hour at SeaTac Airport Thursday, 69 at Crystal Mountain. Puget Sound Energy reported thousands of power outages. There's an active weather pattern across the entire West Coast, including a bomb cyclone in California. The State Department of Health has some good and bad news about infectious diseases. The good news? Flu case counts and hospital visits are down for a third straight week. And RSV seems to be ebbing after a peak in late 2022. The bad news is there's a new dominant COVID variant that's exhibiting signs of evading natural immunity. It's unclear if XBB 1.5 or the Kraken variant is more dangerous than previous strains. And good luck getting between Seattle and Bellevue this weekend, especially if you're headed to the Seahawks game. WashDOT says State Route 520 will be closed. All lanes will shut down between I-5 in Seattle and 92nd Avenue Northeast on the east side starting at 11 p.m. tonight until 5 a.m. Monday. Crews are placing girders for the lid over 520 in Montlake and pouring concrete for the 520 bridge over Union Bay. Well, here we are, the first Friday of the new year. Conservative talk show host Dory Munson died Saturday. You probably have an opinion on his opinions, which you could hear daily for 27 years on Cairo. But Dory understood radio, and he was really good at his job and loved by many of his colleagues and listeners, so we wanted to note his passing. Also this week, thanks to new labor laws, Washington has the highest minimum wage in the country right now. Seattle's is even higher. Another city council member said they won't run again, and so did the state Democratic Party chair. Speaking of job openings, Anne Helen Peterson is here. She's the author of the newsletter Culture Study and the host of a new podcast, Work Appropriate. Anne, so glad you're here. I am so happy to be here. Bill Radke is here as well. He's the host of Week in Review on KUOW and one of my favorite colleagues. Hey, Bill. I feel the same way. Nice to talk to you again, Patricia. And Anne, great to talk to you again. All right. Well, back to the lead here. Some big political announcements this week. Seattle City Council member Alex Peterson said Wednesday he won't run for re-election this fall. Council member Lisa Herbold and Council President Deborah Juarez have already said they won't run again. That makes three of seven seats up for election. Seattle Times described a potential exodus of experience on the council. Juarez, been around since 2015. Herbold's been in local government for nearly two decades. It also makes Shama Sawant the longest serving member of the council if she wins her re-election bid. Bill, you've been around a while. It takes a lot to be a council member. And just reading this as a human, I'm thinking I really can't blame the city council members for bowing out. I wonder if this is the great resignation playing out here. Right. It's, it's interesting. You were reading that and saying the Seattle Times called it an exodus of experience. Uh, I noticed that Alex Peterson, when he said he's not going to run, also said, I am not a career politician. Mm. So aren't the career politicians the ones with the experience? 
Is that a bad thing to be a career politician? It certainly doesn't sound fun these days. I agree. Yeah. And I really wonder if there's something about being in city leadership in this city that's particularly hard. Seattle is challenging. We have to juggle a lot of competing demands. There are serious social issues here. I think it's hard to be a city council person or in local city government in any jurisdiction. But I think it's particularly hard in kind of unique or maybe unacknowledged ways and places that are thought of to be pretty ideologically similar, right? So people are like, oh, Seattle's so liberal, right? But there's a lot of gradations within that liberalism. And there's a difference too, I think, between what people say they want to vote for, right? Like when they go to the ballot box, they're like, I like this candidate. And then when it actually comes to trying to change regulations, trying to change policy in meaningful ways, you get a lot of pushback. And I'll also note that I think anyone in any sort of public position in this moment, and this has been true, I think, for probably the last 10 years, is dealing with a lot of harassment and a lot of threats to themselves and to the people that they love. And that's something that I think a lot of people are taking into account. So how do we protect against that moving forward if we need people to serve in these public positions? It's a difficult question. That's a really good point, Anne. Yeah. And you mentioned there are, there are different flavors of liberals in Seattle. Do you find that that sibling rivalry can be even more <laughs> snide, more intense? You know, the closer you are together, you exaggerate your differences? So I'm from Idaho, and in Idaho, the difference is between Republicans, right? And the infighting between Republicans in that state, right? When every when you dominate, then you start to turn on one another. And I think you see that in both parties, and I think you see it as well in Seattle. In Congress, maybe. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. We're seeing big leadership changes for the Democratic Party, too. Washington Senator Patty Murray sworn in as the new Senate pro tem this week. And as of this taping, still second in line for the presidency because the Republicans can't seem to agree on a leader. And the chair of the Washington Democrats as well won't run for re-election. I do think if you think that business as usual is not serving us, then maybe you think a little less institutional knowledge could be a good thing. I know that that can seem um, sort of absurd on the Republic with, with the ultra, the MAGA Republicans, but even in Seattle... I don't know that open seats on the council and churn is necessarily a bad thing. Depends where you stand. Well, it does raise the question about who the new guard will be mm-hmm. for the state and the city of Seattle. Really very interesting. Some grim news this week. The suspect in the murder of four University of Idaho students was extradited to Moscow. He was arrested in Pennsylvania where he was visiting family over the holidays And pretty much all we know is that the suspect is a Ph.D. student at WSU in Pullman, right across the state line from Moscow. The murders were horrific, enough said about that. But there are some really interesting things that came out about this case this week. The first one is that the judge in Idaho put a gag order in place. So police, prosecutors, defense, they are not allowed to talk to the public or the media until there's a verdict. So the goal there is to let the court record speak. And, you know, you grew up in this area right on the Washington-Idaho border. There is such intense interest in this case. How are you thinking about it? Are you talking to locals? You know, when I was back home for Christmas, it was front page news basically every day in the local newspaper, which makes absolute sense, right? Moscow is is just 30 minutes away. It's, it's a horrible crime. Like, it was so scary on campus that they essentially allowed students to stay home if they wanted to, not just for Thanksgiving break, but for the rest of break. And... The fact that there were no leads 
right, for so long. You know, we just found out, I think, very recently that the DNA that was in a sheath for a knife was how they traced the person that's been arrested. But I also know that it's been the subject of all sorts of like online Redditors, like people trying to do this sort of vigilante detective work that's part of this obsession with true crime that is all over the place right now. And I just, the vacuum of information leads to conspiracy theories as well. You know, I want to talk about the DNA stuff in a minute, but Back to the gag order for a second, because accountability and transparency are really important, but the intensity around this case is so incredible. I respect what the judge is trying to do here by trying to control the amount of information and speculation in order to give this person a fair trial. But Bill, I wonder if this is just going to have the opposite effect, that the froth is just going to get so much thicker because of the lack of information. It just blows open speculation. Well, as far as I can tell, the froth is there whether there's information or not. I mean, you can mm-hmm. depend on speculation and Reddit. And, yeah, I just assume that the uh, that the judge doesn't want the jury pool prejudiced any more than it needs to be. And um, I, I could do with less true crime podcasting and speculation. <laughs> and I just don't know whether, whether a gag order is going to affect that one way or the other. We just seem to mm-hmm. be obsessive that way. Yeah. Well, and the ultimate goal of the judge here is whatever happens to the outcome of this case, whatever the outcome of this case is, that it sticks and it's not appealed based on all of this other stuff that perhaps could have been controlled in the beginning. But back to the DNA, because this is the really interesting piece to me. Like you mentioned, Anne, New York Times reporting court records say he was identified through DNA left behind on an empty knife sheath and that they linked his DNA through a public database to find relatives. Here's the thing. There are some serious privacy and consent questions around using DNA like this, even if it's for a good cause, like exonerating people who are wrongfully convicted, solving past crimes, or in this case, right, finding suspects in new ones. Apparently, this was linked to his father, right? This was DNA that his father had put into a public database, and like for like ancestry.com or something like that right all i can think about is that christmas gift or that birthday gift that dad got at that discounted price to find out all the important information about your ancestry and fast forward that one day it is the reason your son is arrested for murder now again that's a thing that you can agree needed to happen right we need to solve crimes but we don't know what we don't know about dna right now yeah and for sure i mean we think about all the things we thought we knew about dna Mm -hmm. testing and people who have been exonerated because of all sorts of different sorts of evidence right that were thought to be incredibly reliable even 10 15 years ago and then i also think the hard thing in this scenario is that people are like yes absolutely this is how you find murderers without thinking about oh this is how Also, if our government changed in just some pretty small ways, this is how you could track someone who got an abortion, right? This is how you could track someone who showed up at a protest. There's all sorts of ways that DNA can be used in in ways that are not as cut and dry as this one. And just to put a button on this one, the suspect in this case did not enter a plea at their initial hearing on Thursday, and the next court date is January 12th. Twitter is still in the headlines, YouTube, but here's one you might have missed. Apparently, Elon Musk's Twitter workers in Seattle were squatting for a while. 
New York Times reports the company is being evicted from its office in downtown Seattle because they stopped paying rent. This was a strategic move, apparently. Elon Musk's effort to dramatically reduce costs at the company. A journalist for Platformer reported that all Seattle-based Twitter employees are being told to work from home. Now, Anne, (laughs) you literally wrote the book about how to do remote work well, but this does not seem like the way to make the transition. This is really hard because I think that I would not recommend anything that Elon Musk does as good management advice in any way, right? Like some people hail these decisions as like brilliant business moves because they're basically saying the way that we succeed as a business is just to like flagrantly refuse to abide by any of the norms of business practice and just not pay rent, right? Not not good advice. Not good. Move fast and break things. Yeah, yeah, totally. And <laughs> there are admirers of Musk in Silicon Valley who say, this is the way forward. Let's take all that power that our workers had kind of wrested from us in terms of we want to work at home. We want these benefits. And let's say, no, we're the ones in charge, right? Like that is the Musk style of business management. And thus far, Twitter has not imploded in flames. It's certainly not a site that I go to anymore. And I used to be someone who was on it all the time, right? The power users are are leaving in force. I will say when it comes to worker management, thinking about working from home, would do places need offices, we are still in this really awkward transition moment. And I think downtown Seattle really is like such evidence of this, that like, there are some places that are saying, no, come into to work three days a week. What about two days a week? Will you do two days a week? Maybe that will work. We're not in the point yet where either side of this battle, which is not really a battle, it's we're trying to find a compromise of remote work and in office work. We're just we're still in the middle. Right, because beyond the Twitter office space issue is the rest of the downtown core, which has been a lot more empty since the pandemic. Um, We've been having conversations for a long time now about reviving downtown offices and how to revive the city's downtown core. John Talton wrote a piece in the Seattle Times about the slowdown for tech and empty office space. Bill, it is a real time of transition for our city. What I want to know is, and Anne, you you know so much about this. You're the person I want to ask, (laughs) is are we, when we work from home, are we working as well as we used to? Are we doing, are we getting as much done? Are we getting a more, a higher quality done or less and it's worse? Do we know? I feel like I hear from either side, we should be all we working from home and you're just a bunch of boomers if you're telling us to come in. And then I hear, uh, you know, bosses or, or office fans acting like work from home is terrible. We all need to come back. Can we measure the work output? Uh, this is so complicated. So the first thing I'll say is that the data is bad. There is some good data from before the pandemic about what happens in remote companies, and it does show increases in productivity when people work from home. Any of the data that's coming out now about productivity, and there was some recent data just about overall productivity and how it went down in recent quarters, I think it is all sullied data by the fact that everyone is exhausted, right? (laughs) Like we have not had any sort of actual recovery or recuperation from the trauma, the exhaustion of the pandemic. 
And I would also say that the resistance right now to going back into the office, so little of it is about like, I never want to see my coworkers. I don't want to put on pants ever, anything like that, <laughs> right? In Seattle in particular, and I think this is an interesting conversation in Seattle, there is not good transit options, right? Traffic is still bad. There is an incredible childcare crisis. People have to move further and further from the city in order to find affordable housing. So that means further and further commutes to get into work. So any conversation has to include those larger contextual elements in order to really get at the heart of why people are resisting five day a week back in the office structure. You know, I went into the office yesterday and it was a lovely day. I saw all of my colleagues and I really was so happy to see them and have important conversations. And I like my colleagues. But by the end of the day, I was so tired. And what I mm. realized last night was that I'm going to take that those interstitial moments between work, right? 15 minutes between a meeting. But at home, I'm going to sit in my chair and maybe scroll TikTok or throw a load of laundry in. In the office, I'm going to take a lap and I'm going to have social interactions yeah. all along that lap. And by the end of the day, I am completely socially maxed out. And here's where you can see the tension really emerge in terms of people who are leaders and managers who in a lot of cases, not all, but in many cases, they have risen to that that place of management or leadership because they love making the lap and talking to everyone. It gives them energy. It feels great. It's the thing about their job that they that, you know, makes them go into the office. I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> I know a lot of people I know are like, can't we just figure out a policy? Why can't there just be a policy? And that we're just not I get there it, yet. Bill. <laughs> I get it. Well, it is January, the time of year when everyone you follow on Instagram is posting their New Year's resolutions or lack thereof. Personally, I am down if you want to make a New Year's resolution, but I prefer to focus on letting the mishigash of the previous year go. It's more my style. But apparently Seattle is the best city in the country to live if you do make resolutions and want to stick with them, according to a study from Wallet Hub. You finally got us, Wallet Hub. They send about a hundred <laughs> pitches a week. Yes. I'm always like, where who are they asking? Who are they asking? How are they getting this information? <laughs> Seattle ranked highly on fitness and health resolutions, probably because we have a lot of gyms and nice walking trails, but we didn't do so well on resolutions to break bad habits. Because, of course, our brewery scene is just, Ballard is too much of a draw. So what we have here, Seattle, is an opportunity. Bill, do you make resolutions? I have tried to make solitary resolutions and failed. So I only make, and this is my advice to you that you didn't ask for, only make a resolution that involves joining a group. And then you join that group in January right away. You get yourself committed. You you like immediately offer to host a coffee at your home. You know, you go to church and you sign up for the choir. You know, you exchange phone numbers. You And when you go to the, your first book club meeting, whatever your thing is, your, your first meditation, group meditation, you don't pretend that you love it. You don't send texts and emails about how fabulous it is with exclamation points and crying laughing emojis because that's fakey and you're not going to stick with it. You just be real and follow through. Worm your way into this this new resolution so that it's hard to get it to get out because we're social animals. 
Yeah, I think like making yourself obligated to something. You know, this is the thing when I talk to people about like, how can I form better community, which is a real struggle in a place like Seattle, you know, the notorious Seattle freeze, is you've got to figure out a way to make yourself obligated to other people because it's going to be awkward at first. And you're going to be like, I'm never going back to that again. But if you sign up for something, and this is the thing that's great, I think, about like volunteer opportunities that require you to make a commitment, is that you sign up for that one awkward thing and then you go again and it's a lot less awkward. And then you have better conversations and you start to figure out that you like it. And I think that one thing that we have become too accustomed to is stopping things the first time that it feels not incredibly great, right? <laughs> and so yeah. there, there's a difference between not doing things that you don't like. Like, I, I don't think anyone should do something that really deeply makes them feel uncomfortable and getting past that that first thing in order to do the thing that you actually really want to do, which is to create more bonds with other people in your neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. And, and Bill, I love an accountability partner, you know, somebody that you can trust and you've both agreed, we're going to try to do this and, you know, being kind to each other along the way. It's great. It's yeah. great. Well, good luck with all your New Year's resolutions. And if you founder along the way, maybe try and conjure the delusional persistence of Kevin McCarthy today and get back out there and try again. <laughs> Thanks to our guests, Ann Helen Peterson and Bill Radke. Thank you. Thank you. This was a true pleasure. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to Seattle Now. Claire McGrain produced today's show. The show is also produced by Caroline Chamberlain Gomez, Jenny Cecil Moore, Vaughn Jones, and Brandy Fullwood. Matt Jorgensen does our theme music. Seattle Now and KUOW Public Radio are members of the NPR Network. It's an independent coalition of public media podcasters. You can find more shows in the network wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Patricia Murphy. See you Monday. 